The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the Gospel of Luke, uh, continuing along. Um, Last week, Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And this week, we pick up right where he left off, um, going back home uh, to visit uh, friends and family that he grew up with. All right. We are in Luke. Um, did I get the right verses there? On the, I, it should be 30, let me see. Yes, 13 to 31. Uh, four. So the verses are wrong on that. I didn't update those. Sorry. Those are dead wrong. Hopefully everything else in the sermon is in this, is, a, is correct. Um, so chapter 4, verse 13, and I'm going to read all the way up to verse 30. We'll pray. Sorry, I've got the little bit of a nagging cough that's like a holdover. Anyhow. So we're going to make it through together. So he's just finished all the temptations. When the devil had ended every temptation, he, that's Jesus, departed from him until an opportune time. When Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, I'm sorry, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the, the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months in a great famine over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath. Zarephath. Sorry, me and Mary were working on our name pronunciation here. In the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet, prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman of Syria, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so that they might throw him down the cliff. But passing through the midst, he went away. Let's pray, because this is a, there's a lot going on here. Jesus, as we look at these 
uh, the story of your the beginning of your ministry, your public ministry, we ask that we would be reminded of the power and scandal of grace. That we are the recipients of unqualified mercy. And we enjoy you without having to do or prove or be anything other than we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're coming into the ministry of Jesus, and we're kind of getting settled into who he is, what he's about, what he does. And one of the key words that always gets kind of used with Jesus, we've, we've said it in the songs we've sung thus far, and um, it tends to get used a lot in Christian vernacular, is the word grace. We will say the word grace a lot. Like, I don't know if you grew up saying grace over dinner. That's not what we're talking about. Grace being um, God's favor to us, God, the way God relates to us, the way we don't deserve God to relate to us, but the way God re- chooses to relate to us with kindness and mercy and love. That's kind of a big word that's associated with Jesus. And we're starting out here with Jesus coming right off, basically, you can almost kind of see like the singe of demonic presence coming off of him as he walks out of the wilderness. Can you imagine like that like epic movie sort of the scene where you got like the, the smoke and like kind of like dusting it off of him, and he walks right back into town. He goes all over the region, starts talking in all their churches, effectively, their synagogues, talking about who God is and what he's about, grace. And then he ends up going back to his hometown. And you can kind of read the story a bit like, man, Jesus got a bit of a uh, chip on his shoulder, shoulder, because it's almost like he goes back to his hometown to pick a fight. But I think what we've got going on here in Jesus' life and ministry is that he chooses to go back to, hometown, to his hometown for my, lots of reasons. But if he can clarify what grace is and is not, the kind of the way God relates to us in his own home, home turf, it's going to clear the decks for how he then engages with the rest of the Jewish world at the time. Right? If he can deal with, you know, like, I don't know, sometimes when people move out, like they move out because they're trying to get away from home. And like there's like some unresolved stuff with their family that they're trying to get away from. And Jesus is going the exact opposite direction. He's like, there's some unresolved stuff we've got to work out here. I'm going to work on it so that we can then engage with the rest of who God is and what he's about and what grace means and the rest of what his ministry is going to do without this kind of lingering question. So it's a bit of a homecoming, a bit of a family reunion. And as we're getting into this, what I want to hold out for us is the main, the main point of what this passage is driving at. What I want to kind of hold out in front of us is that we are called in this passage, and if you can put that up, yeah, to celebrate that we are one of the many who receive Jesus' broad, liberating grace. Now, we're going to kind of unpack that as we move through this. And each, we're going to talk about the power of Jesus' liberating grace, talk about the people, and then the, the scandal or the offense of his grace. But this is kind of the, what we're driving at. This, the, the problem here is that this passage is written kind of in photo negative. And I realize, I'm trying to think of like, I realize that's an old term. Like you used to have to like develop photos with the negatives and all that stuff. So like, there's like a black light version of what we, the positive side being, we want to experience this main point. Celebrate that we are one of the many who received Jesus' broad liberating grace. We're going to see that through the kind of photo negative of this passage. So we're going to start out here, pick up where we left off with Jesus walking out of the wilderness. Verse 13, the power of Jesus liberating grace. 
Let me just read this for us, and we'll make a few comments. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So this is, we're kind of reading through the Gospel of Luke. You're going to continue to see demonic powers show up. That's not Satan himself, but these are kind of like the, people, the spiritual world that Jesus is interacting with, responding. And it's an ominous note. Satan will come back into the picture later on. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went out about him throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So the, the important part here is this phrase, and he left the desert, basically, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's the important phrase. The rest of the other stuff is basically just to say, like, Jesus got famous. Like, Jesus got viral. He went, everybody knew who he was. They knew what he was talking about. He was the big deal in town, kind of in the region, like like New Hampshire, you know, like, what, 1.4 million people. Like, if somebody's famous here, like, that doesn't mean that they're, like, nationally famous, but they're, like, regionally famous, you know? So, like, everybody knows who they are. The point being, Jesus went in the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the second person, or third person of the Trinity, and the, the critical thing to remember is that we've seen the Spirit all through the Bible story in critical ways. And we talk about it. This month we're using the Nicene Creed for our confession of faith for the Lord's Supper. And we have a key from that creed, which is why we recite it, and are understanding what's going on here. We talk about, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Right? That's how we talk about the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Beginning with, in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is the one who hovers over the waters of creation to bring forth, to enact the will of God, to create the world around us, right? We also have the Holy Spirit that is then present that, um, that when we read the story of the flood, right? It's the wind of the Spirit that pushes the waters away. The waters of judgment brings forth the new world that God created out of the flood. You have the, the story of Exodus, and you have the wind that comes through and breaks up the waters so they can walk through on dry land through the Red Sea. That's the Spirit's presence. So the Spirit is always not only associated with God's creation work, but His renewing work. Anything that God does that's new, that to kind of to bridge the gap between God's world and our world that's been marred by sin and death. So the important thing is that basically... Jesus' ministry is about mending the rift between heaven and earth and bringing them back together. And for us, we're going to kind of touch on this several times as we kind of work through the Gospel of Luke. We commented on this last week, and it's still important for us to remember in the book of Acts. So basically, the Gospel of Luke is, here's what Jesus is like, and then the book of Acts is, here's what his followers are like. And in the book of Acts, there's six times where the, his followers are saying, all right, God, we need you to, we want to join what you're doing. We're going to pray. Holy Spirit comes, fills them, and then new things happen. That's happening here for Jesus to kind of set the model for us. When we join Jesus, when we follow him, his, the Holy Spirit fills us to then join what God is doing, not separate from the world around us, right? We're not like this holy huddle off to the side. We are a part of God's pervasive work in the neighborhoods and country around us, right? So you see Jesus went to his home state, like Galilee, you know, standing in for New Hampshire, right? Jesus, when we are filled by his spirit, are not kind of pulled away from Manchester or whatever suburb you're in, Auburn, 
one under Guap's down, whatever. You're not set apart. You're then filled by the Spirit to then bring this grace of who Jesus is into the workplace, your families, around the, the world around you. That's really just kind of what we're seeing here in Jesus. Right? He's filled with this power of liberating grace. So now we're going to talk about the people of his liberating grace here, verse 16 and 19. So he came to Nazareth, right? Homeboy coming back to his hometown where he'd been brought up. And, he, and as was his custom, so this is basically every time is kind of his formula for how Jesus would do ministry. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood and he stood up to read. So basically at that time, there was they would have a sermon of some kind, right? And the sermon was largely just delivered on whatever the scheduled reading of the passage of Scripture was for that day. Very similar to kind of how we do things, right? Hey, we're in the book of Isaiah. Jesus, here's Isaiah. you got to say something because you're the guy. Everybody's talking about you. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, when we read this, this is actually two prophecies in the book of Isaiah brought together into one statement. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberties to the, liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, these are two prophecies brought together. The critical part, actually, is that the in one of the prophecies, there's a statement of, in the day the Lord brings, you know, God's wrath and judgment, and he skips over that to basically say, that's coming later. Right now, this is what Jesus is all about. This is the, the work of God in the world right now. And I want to kind of put up this like more, can we go to the next slide here? This is like a more literal reading of this passage, because I wanted to emphasize certain aspects of what's going on here. Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me, right? This is awkward English, but this is kind of how it literally comes out. To proclaim for the captives release into the blind sight. To set forth the oppressed in release. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? There's these repetitions of me and release that basically is showing that at the heart of who Jesus is, is a mission to release people because of who Jesus is. That's a critical thing to get here. When we talk about grace, this is getting at the heart of what grace is because grace is release. And when we talk about it through the rest of Luke, it's going to mean two things. Forgiveness of sins and release from the power of the devil. Right? So that's why we talk about Satan, sin, and death. It's kind of like these like three things that we talk about. Jesus is coming out and he's saying, release. You've been bound by something that has held your humanity, suppressed who you are, oppressed your humanity. I am coming to release you from that, which is both guilt and shame for the wrongs and sins that we've committed, but also the oppression of power that sits around us in, in this world that is kind of like right behind the veil that we can't quite, I don't know what the deal is here, but something's just getting me down. Jesus comes to bring into the light all who love him and to release them from the power of sin and death. Now, one thing I want to point out here, to preach good news to the poor, who are the poor and what does that mean for this passage? Now, when we read this, 
we're Americans and we're highly capitalistic. And so we read that, we think, well, it just means economic poor. Or if you come from like an overly church background, you'd be like, oh, that's people who are spiritually poor. Right? He's come to people who are like spiritually poverty. I want to pull out one of the scholars that I've been reading, kind of help kind of broaden our scope because it's not either or. But I want to bring out this quote from Joel Green. You can read this here or you can listen to me. I'm going to read it. In that culture, at the time of Jesus, one's status in a community was not so much a function of economic realities, but depended on a number of elements, including education, gender, family heritage, religious purity, location, economics, so on. Thus, lack of subsistence, sorry, lack of subsistence might account for one's designation as poor, but so might the other disadvantages, dis- disadvantaged conditions. And poor could serve as a cipher for those of low state, for those low status, for those excluded according to normal canons of status, honor, in Mediterranean world. Hence, although poor is hardly devoid of economic significance, for Luke, this wider meaning diminishes status as paramount. Right. So basically, he's saying poor is a stand-in word for basically anybody who is an outsider, anybody who is set aside, anybody who is other to the kind of standard issue kind of world around us, anybody who is outside the power structures, anybody who has no or little cultural clout to draw attention or influence. Right, people who have derogatory terms used about them with, with ease. You know, we're in a recovery center. How many of our friends who are in recovery have been called junkies in their life? Sort of thing. You can think of like other derogatory terms used for other, you know, any other type of background or history. Something that causes people that, that feel within themselves they have taken on and are disadvantaged from having momentum in life, right? But it's these people specifically. Right? That could be spiritual poverty, could be economic poverty, but it's a whole host of things. But Jesus is saying at the outset, I have come for people who are disregarded by the world. In a world that has created a, a kind of a whole system of haves and haves nots that excludes my people, those are the people I've come for. I've come that all might become a part of my kingdom, right? And that's why the term, if we go back to this um, Isaiah verses, that's why the term revel, like, gives sight to the blind. Like, it's not merely, like, give the blind sight. Like, it's not merely, like, a statement about physical healing. It's so that people can come to their senses and realize, like, oh my gosh, I, I need this Jesus. I need this help because this whole system that I've built for myself to have status and advantage and all that stuff is absolutely worthless. It dies with me when I die. It's, it's at the heart of this passage. Jesus indicates his refusal to recognize those socially determined boundaries and asserting instead that all of these out, out, kind of outliers are the very people who get grace. Now, Imagine Jesus saying this in some 
small town where he grew up in, you know, the uplands of New Hampshire. They hear this and they're like, bro, this is great for us because we're the outsiders. Like we're from Nazareth. They've already got a proverb going around. Nothing good comes from Nazareth because we're just kind of a backwoods country. This is great. So that's where we're going to get into this third point here and kind of clarify what exactly is Jesus talking about? Because he is he talking about kind of like, you think about whatever sort of kind of backwoods, well, we've got this upstart guy. Let's read the rest of the story. So the offense of Jesus' liberating gospel or grace, or you could call this the scandal of Jesus' liberating grace, whichever one. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good news. That's great, because I love this whole idea of liberation for us here in Nazareth. I'm down with that. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to, them, said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. And in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophets Elijah. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman was Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the bow of the hill on, the, on which their town was built so that they might throw him down the cliff. And he passed down through the, this goes from like zero to 60 in a heartbeat. And if you're following along, I mean, I think that if we're reading this passage and you're, if you're like me, you're like, Jesus, this sounds great. Liberation for the captives, liberation for those who are held by Satan, sin, and death. Sounds good to me. I don't know what these people are getting all angry about. Sorry. What's the big deal? Because it's not just like they got angry, like they disagreed with Jesus. They tried to throw him off a cliff. Also, I'm just going to say verse uh, 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. I don't know how to understand that verse. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's like a miracle, like, because I don't get the sense that Jesus was a violent guy, so he wasn't like duking it out to get out of the, like, I don't know what was going on. The only thing I can explain is that basically later in the gospel, Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I give it down willingly. So he's like, I'm not going out by the mob. I'm going out by on my own terms. Like, I don't know. But I don't know how to make sense of that verse. So we're just going to kind of take that and say miracle and move on with the rest of the passage, all right? Okay, let me kind of break this down so that we understand what exactly is going on when they get angry. So you'll notice, I wanted to read verse 22. Is this not Joseph's son? We can read that dismissively. Like some people, I think you might read that through and be like, is this just like this Jesus from Joseph? I think what's going on here is that they have heard Jesus. I think it's a positive read. They've heard Jesus say so many good things. They've heard such a great reputation. And then he comes to them and he says, 
this prophecy is fulfilled on this very day right here. They're like, bro, it's go time. This is great. Jesus, do all that stuff for us. Jesus recognizes they like what's going down right here. They like what I'm saying. They think this is going to go well. So then this proverb, he says in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. And this is a qualifier that kind of helps us understand. Jesus is attributing this to them. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We think of the ancient world as being a totally different place, but the reality is ancient world, very much like today. I don't know if you've ever had like a doctor in your family or something like that, but bro, it's a great way to get around the healthcare system, right? If you've got like a physician in your house, you know, like, hey, like one time, I don't know some of you know, like I've, I have a history of having kidney stones from time to time. We're at a family vacation. We're visiting some folks. I think in my family, I is not my family, my wife's family. I think I have three doctors, and we were there, and I was like, oh, got the kidney stone coming. We're going to head home so I can be in pain and agony at home. <clears throat> and one of the doctors there who will remain nameless was like, well, do you need like a morphine to, you know, script? I was like, no, I'm okay. I'm going to go home. But it's that kind of idea, right? A thousand, 2,000 years ago, same today. If you've got a family member who's a doctor, bro, you can charge whatever you want to the people out there, but family gets special privilege. I don't have to worry about going to the doctor, paying the copay, doing all that stuff, pay for his time. You just, I got an insider gig here. Same thing with this. That's what this proverb is basically saying. Physician, heal yourself. Your family benefits from your privilege. Your family benefits from your status. Your family benefits from your good gifts, right? This might sound like mob boss type stuff, but it's just the way it works, right? So what Jesus is identifying is they're happy that this Messiah, the one who's bringing all of this great liberation, is their own guy. He's on our team. Bro, we got this guy. He's doing all this stuff, healing people left and right, preaching circuit. Dude, we got him at our town. He's from us. This is Joseph's son. We got an insider. Bro, I've got a table in my house that he built. Like, all that stuff. They've got special privilege, and Jesus is calling them out on it because he is clarifying grace does not have special privilege. Nobody, this whole like outsider language, there's not like even within that special privilege for getting this grace. Right? And he uses illustrations of Elijah and Elisha. Basically, both of these stories are about this period in, in, in God's story in the Old Testament where God had prophets who were very rare, and they went to people and gave and expressed God's kindness to non-Israelites. And they weren't sent to the people of Israel to flip the expectations of special privilege, right? Elijah, he's from the block, got a lot of good things to say. He's got an inside word with God. God, clearly, we're three and a half years into this famine. Would you help us out? No, I'm going to go outside the borders. I'm going to go over to Vermont (laughs) and help those people in Vermont, so to speak, and do something for them, not for the folks in the region. And they realize what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no, you don't even get 
kind of like birth certificate special privilege with God. You might have been born into the nation of Israel. You might be from my town. You might have grown up next to Jesus. But when it comes to God's mission of liberating grace, there is no expectations that you can put on it to get special privilege. My grace is for everyone that is on the margins of power and privilege. Do you ever feel, whether it's here, work, family, friend group, like there's an insider group and that you're in the outsider group? I think we all feel that. The crazy thing is, like, I'm the pastor of the church, and I can feel like, man, there's like this inside group of runners. What's up with these guys? I don't have that. <laughs> I'm kidding. But you know what I'm saying? Like, we all live, I think, with this sense of, like, man, like, what is it? Why am I not, like, why do I not, what have I not done? Like, how have I not lived up to the expectations of others? How have I not earned, you know, whatever? Why am I not on the inside group? Jesus is coming and saying, that is the exact opposite of everything that I am about. Inside group, outside group, does not exist in Jesus' family. We are all those who do not have privilege with God. And yet we are the exact ones that God wants to be in his privileged family. It's a weird way to say it. He wants to give us grace. He wants to give us mercy. He wants us to enjoy his presence in renewing power. And the only way to get in and to be a part of that is to recognize, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve anything of what God's given me. And yet, it is radically true that God has made us free and liberated us because of his grace in Jesus for the sole reason that he likes to. He wants to. It's his gig. And he doesn't have any price tags on it. He doesn't have any sort of like, now you got to live up to these expectations, right? Jesus wants us to celebrate that we are one of the many who received his broadly liberating grace. We don't get grace because Jesus is on our side. We get grace because Jesus chooses to bring us to his side. You know, the thing that's fascinating about this passage, and there's probably something to explore in small groups, who are the people that get most mad? Who are the people who are raging angry? It's the religious people. That's the, that is the, the irony and the frustration of this whole the story in the Bible, the story up to now. It is always religious folks who get the most bent out of shape about the broad scope of God's redemptive grace. Think about it like this. I was talking to somebody recently. It's not anybody's thing, like names or anything like that. But I was talking to a friend recently, and, you know, we're a part of a network of churches, and they had made a comment along the lines of, like, well, um, you know, so, you know, these type of people who think differently than us on this theological thing, they're just sloppy thinkers. And I was like, I disagree with them on that issue, but they are still people who have professed faith in Jesus. They are still people who are marked by His Spirit, and they may be wrong, but they may be, but they have a, a at least a head on their shoulders in how they're trying to think about this issue. Like there's certain, there's some things where people are just kind of like dead wrong. Okay, like I can be okay with that, 
But if somebody has professed faith in Jesus, that they are trusting in Him, and then not only that, but God's clearly using it. I don't become the gatekeeper for who gets grace and who doesn't. I need to respond. I can say I disagree. I don't agree with that particular perspective or whatever. But I don't get to be the person who says, well, the people from my theological and church camp, right, who cares? Pick up your bottle of water. <laughs> people from my theological camp get grace, and the other people, they get less grace. See, Jesus is saying out of the gate, you get grace because you get me equally. Right? People who have like a better theological perspective on whatever, people who can win the day on whatever theological issue from the Bible, I'm not saying those things are not important. I think they're pretty important. I clearly have perspectives on them. But that doesn't mean that because I like I sign my lot, my name on this you know theological statement, I therefore get more grace from God. That that would be like, well, if I was from Nazareth, I would get more grace from Jesus because I'm on his side. I mean, I grew up next to him. This passage, I think we have to, especially as people who are religious, we have to wrestle with this reality on a regular basis. You never, ever, ever, ever get more grace with God because you've somehow proven yourself that, like worthy of grace. Like you don't get more grace because you've proven yourself worthy of grace. That's, that's actually the reverse. We get grace because we just want, we want to be near Jesus. Like that's the requirement for getting grace. I just, I just want to get more of Jesus. Grace and mercy come with that. That's, that's how I get him, but I just want him, not his stuff. You know, you can be theologically right and attend, you know, do whatever with your theology and be completely alienated from Jesus. The people most scandalized by God's grace are often religious people. And I'm not thinking of anything particular in our church. I'm not thinking of any conversation with anybody in our church, actually. I'm just thinking of my own proclivities. I, tend, I can have the tendency to think, well, that person would get more of Jesus if they aligned theologically or politically or practice this that way. Plenty of people politically across the spectrum who want Jesus and that's how they get Jesus. They want him and they get him. And they're theologically, you know, at least from my perspective, from crazy to right. You know, I mean, not right politically. I mean, correct to crazy. Like, you're either correct politically or you're crazy, right? That's not the right way to say it, to believe that. I'm not saying that that's actually, like, a commendable way to view politics, but that tends to be the way we think about it. And in my heart of hearts, I have to wrestle with people that are different from me and how they think about things. If they want Jesus, they've got him. And I can't get in the way of that. I have no right to be a native of Nazareth getting in the way of somebody receiving that undeserved, liberating grace. This should make us feel a little uneasy and uncomfortable. But it should also leave us with this profoundly wide-open invitation 
Jesus wants you to be liberated from sin and death. That does mean that our life practices change, right? That does mean that we grow in holiness. That does mean that we then become more like Jesus. But getting Jesus is not dependent on doing those things first. We get him and grow in him and we change in him. But it is always at the end of the day, free, unmerited, undefiled grace. This is similar to the beginning of the Gospel of John. I can read that for us for a second. The Gospel of John begins and says this very point. He kind of skips over a lot of stuff from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the Gospel of John says this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and made the, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in him, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We get Jesus, not because we're from his town, from his ethnicity, or even share his perspective on the world. We get Jesus because we know in him, and him alone is life and liberty. Maybe one of the ways that we can serve as a community of Jesus to witness to who Jesus is in our neighborhood, in our city, in our current context, with all the division that we feel in one way or the other, we are a community of people who are so Jesus-centered. Those sort of divisions, they stand outside the door and wait for us there. But when we come in together, you want Jesus, I want Jesus. And so we want to get him together so that we experience his liberation together. I pray that as we work through this passage, that we would be people who are celebrating that we are one of the many who will receive Jesus' broad liberating grace. Let's pray. God, as we've looked at this passage, I pray that we would have experienced more of you, gotten more of Jesus, experienced his liberation, and to be people who are merely grateful that we get to be a part of your family because of him. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. For listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire, please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.